Welcome to the 1990 Malkin Lecture. It's good to see so many of you here. The lecture uh, will be followed by a reception in room 523, and I hope you will all come and have a glass of champagne and say hello to this year's speaker and to Mr. Lucian Goldschmidt, last year's speaker, and to next year's speaker, myself. <laughs> In Rare Book School this summer, there will be, as has been the custom for the past couple of years, a hallway exhibition on various aspects this time around having to do with the 20 years of the Rare Books program at Columbia with which I have been associated. You will, I think most of you know, that the School of Library Services being phased out by the university over the next couple of years but Rare Book School will continue as usual next summer at Columbia. And the hallway exhibition, which as I say will be a retrospective look at the past 20 years or so of the Rare Books program, uh, which has the at least working title of Thanks for the Memories, <laughs> uh, will in fact be in part a picture pre-version of what I will have to say from this podium next year at this time. I'm also, and even happier, also happy and even happier to say that the 1991 Malkin lecture will be the last lecture at Columbia, but it will by no means be the last Malkin lecture. Mrs. Malkin has indicated her de determination to uh, continue the lecture on its present handsome basis uh, in a better place to be announced, and that quite soon. Meanwhile, it's great pleasure to introduce the 1990 Malkin Lecture, a person who, as the poster over there proves, is no stranger to these shores. Tom Tansel was lectured here on many occasions under uh, various hats. It's a pleasure to welcome him here tonight to give the 1990 Malkin Lecture, Libraries, Museums, and Reading. Thank you, Terry. I'm honored to be one of the Malkin lecturers and delighted to have this opportunity to recognize publicly the generosity that Saul Malkin showed to me. In the 1960s, he published several articles of mine in his journal, The Antiquarian Bookman, and commented with kindness in its pages on several I had published elsewhere. I remember feeling a special pleasure when he printed my tribute to Gerald Nedwick, a Chicago book dealer whose shop I had frequented in my graduate school days. My conversations with Saul were largely limited to rather hurried exchanges at meetings of the Bibliographical Society of America, but I recall one memorable instance after a BSA meeting in the early 70s when he and Edwin Wolfe and I had a long bookish discussion over drinks in the Berkeley restaurant on West 44th Street. Delivering a lecture named for him stirs these memories, and I am grateful to Mary Ann Malkin for providing the occasion. I hope she will regard this lecture as my note of thanks to her and Saul 
for their contributions to the book world. 18 centuries ago, Lucian chose the ignorant book collector as an object of his satire. A collector, that is, who has a greater interest in possessing books than in reading them. You will buy books, he said, addressing this collector, and make no use of them and get yourself laughed at by men of learning who are satisfied with the gain that they derive not from the beauty of books or their expensiveness, but from the language and thought of their author. In making such comments, Lucian was participating in a tradition that shows no signs of diminishing even today. The one cliché that every collector or accumulator of books has had to face repeatedly whenever a visitor sees the massed volumes is the question, have you read them all? <laughs> the ubiquity of this response to books in quantity is suggested by its appearance in a recent New Yorker drawing. Daniel, visiting the Lion's bookline den, says, the next thing you'll tell me is that you've read all of these. <laughs> Many a book collector, upon hearing such a remark, has felt, if not acted, like a provoked lion. But risking the collector's wrath is actually part of the motivation for the comment. Those who utter it see the collector's attraction to books as perverted and decadent, and they cannot resist the exhilaration that comes from expressing, however obliquely, their superiority in recognizing the folly of others. The possessors of books, for their part, have behaved no better because their reply often takes the form of a second cliché. This collection is not just a museum, they are likely to say, because it is actively used by scholars and students. Although some such comment occasionally comes from private collectors who have been brainwashed into thinking it the proper response to the uninitiated, one hears it most often from institutional collectors, Curators of rare book or special collections departments of research libraries frequently seem to believe that they can win over, or at least appease, trustees, donors, alumni, and unsympathetic faculty and students by proclaiming that people actually read the books in their charge. Some curators of books may really believe that there is something wrong with presiding over just a museum and others may think that it is politic to say that their books are used for reading. But both groups clearly feel on the defensive. Such is the strength of the sentiment that an interest in books as physical objects is frivolous. The fact is that librarians and other collectors, through this behavior, have tended to confirm a prevalent misconception about the essential nature of libraries and museums. Even Melville Dewey, founder of this library school, once said, the time was when a library was very like a museum, and a librarian was a mouser in musty books, and visitors looked with curious eyes at ancient tomes and manuscripts. The time is when a library is a school, and the librarian is in the highest sense a teacher, and the visitor is a reader among the books as a workman among his tools. This statement was resurrected earlier this year in condensed form for the front cover of A.B. Bookman's Weekly at the time of the annual conference 
of the rare book and manuscript section of the Association of College and Re Research Libraries, and I would venture to claim that no more than a few persons attending the conference regarded the statement as shameful, as indicative of a point of view that continues to pose a serious threat to the informed study of the past. Even though museums and libraries as well are now much more active in what is called outreach than they were in Dewey's time, the essence of his position that libraries should be conducted differently from museums does not appear unreasonable to many people at present. Why is it that museums are thought of as places in which to look passively at displays whereas libraries are regarded as places in which to engage actively in study. Why is it, to, to turn the question around, that museums are infrequently considered, except by a relatively small group of specialists, as places where research is conducted, and that libraries are rarely thought of by the public at large as repositories of physical artifacts? To respond that museums hold works of visual art and libraries works of verbal art is not to make a satisfactory answer because it does not confront the fact that libraries, like museums, are full of physical objects from the past. What else could they contain? The real answer to the question is that the common distinction between libraries and museums results from a failure to think through the role of artifacts in the study of the past and to understand the nature of the transmission of verbal texts. This failure is therefore of the most fundamental significance. I wish to contend, in contrast to the usual cliches about reading and museums, that only by approaching books as museum objects do we most fully and productively read them. I mean something more by this assertion than simply that the physical forms of books can convey significant information about the milieu from which those books emerged. But the study of the format, layout, script or typography, paper, and binding of books does serve this function, and I should perhaps take note of it first, since it is regularly adduced by those who endeavor to explain the function of so-called rare book collections. For example, one of the best-known statements of the rationale of rare books, written by William A. Jackson of the Houghton Library in 1949, refers to the need for original materials in the training of paleographers, analytical bibliographers, and textual critics, and thus implies the, the importance of their kind of work for historical study. A more effective statement in many fewer words, was made five years later by Stanley Pargellis of the Newberry Library. No scholar worth his salt but goes to the original document, in manuscript or in print, he said, because that is where one finds the best evidence possible. The book itself is witness of its importance in its age. Despite such comments, students of literary and intellectual history have not always given physical details their due. But in recent decades, a whole field has arisen, beginning in France as l'histoire du livre, that seeks to explore the sociological history of publishing and reading. Among the concerns of some of its practitioners has been an examination of what the physical appearance of books reveals about the stature of their authors and genres, 
the motivations of their publishers, and the interpretations of their readers. It is not surprising that these studies, which focus on verbal works as social products and on meanings as readers' responses, would gain favor at a time when the concept of literature as the personal expression of individual minds is under attack. As a result, rare book collections are in the unaccustomed position of being central to a branch of scholarship that is in fashion. The idea that these collections are museums of the book, preserving books as visual objects, may begin to seem more appealing to those formerly embarrassed by it because the collections will be seen as museums in which scholarly work is pursued. All museums, of course, despite the popular stereotype, are centers of historical research. The study of the past is inseparable from the physical objects that provide our tangible evidence of the past. When the Smithsonian's recent consideration of the feasibility of an African-American museum was reported in the news, the questions asked included, should it be a repository? Should it be a research center? To ask these two questions is to invent an unnecessary dilemma, for a museum is necessarily a repository, and a repository is inevitably a research center. The widespread failure to understand this elementary fact sometimes touches even those directly involved with museums, as the recent difficulties at the Victoria and Albert Museum show. The director, chosen by the government-appointed board of trustees, none of whom, in John Pope Hennessy's words, had a vestigial knowledge of works of art, <laughs> set out to eliminate a considerable number of curatorial positions, not understanding that the curators, as scholars whose accumulated knowledge grew out of the objects they worked with every day, were central to the institution. Those trustees, like many other people, had no notion of the tradition that Anna Summers Cox referred to when she said that her education as a curator there, imparted by more experienced curators, had about it the quality of a sacred trust. She also spoke of puzzling over artifacts until their language became clear. All artifacts can be read once their language is learned for what they have to tell about their own production and about the place they held in the lives of those who previously possessed them. All are evidences of human activity, manifestations of the physical basis of culture. Books, being manufactured objects, can be read in this way. Analytical bibliographers for the past century or so have been examining printed books for clues to their printing history, distinguishing the work of one typesetter from another, determining the sequence of typesetting, and working out the precise timing of press work proofreading and correcting. These studies contribute to printing history in general and provide information for scholarly editors. Historians of art have a different focus when examining books. They study typography, layout, and decoration in relation to the aesthetics of the time. And now reception theorists and students of reading are looking at the design of books from another angle to see what role it has played in the way people have interpreted the texts in books. These various approaches to the visual features of books, 
are analogous to the ways all other objects are read. All the objects collected by museums and libraries, being physical, can effectively be perceived only through the senses of sight and touch, and reading their visual characteristics is thus inevitable and basic. One might have thought that these considerations would have been sufficient in themselves to justify the preservation of books as objects. Given the importance of books in human history, even though that importance is not primarily a function of their physical appearance, one might expect that libraries would regularly be regarded as museums of books, as institutions for the preservation and study of a significant class of artifact. The very existence of rare book or special collections departments, however, shows paradoxically that books are generally not thought of in this way. Otherwise, there would be no need to segregate certain books for special protection as objects, and no need for people like Jackson and Pargellus to write defenses of this activity. The books in the general stacks of a library are a part of its collection. Indeed, in most cases, the largest part. Yet they are treated as if their physical status is unimportant. They may be rebound, or they may even be discarded and replaced by what are naively called better copies. Sometimes copies of the same editions, sometimes of different editions, and in either case, sometimes on microfilm. Museum curators could not treat in this fashion the objects in their care because they see no dichotomy between the preservation of physical objects and the preservation of a cultural heritage. Librarians, however, are inclined to share with the general public the idea that the cultural heritage transmitted in books can survive independently of the physical objects in any given collection. As a result, librarians, professional curators of books, have for the most part missed the opportunity to instruct the users of books in a matter so fundamental that it affects all reading. The misunderstanding they have reinforced has suffused the interpretations of verbal works by scholars, critics, and casual readers across the centuries. The primary fact about the nature of libraries, and the one most often ignored, is that libraries do not house works of literature or other verbal works. Language is intangible. Works that use language as their medium are inevitably intangible also. And one cannot preserve something that is intangible in a physical space. All arts in which the products have duration, with dimensions in time rather than in space, employ intangible media. And if such works are to be experienced more than once, the instructions for their repetition must be committed to memory or to a tangible surface like paper. Musical and choreographic notations on paper and emulsified images on celluloid are examples of instructions in physical form for the recreation of works of music, dance, and cinema. No one supposes that a library holding such papers and films actually contains within its walls the sounds of music, the movements of dance, or the manipulated light of movies. 
But because works of language can be performed within the mind as well as orally, and because readers sitting in libraries are actually experiencing such works, many people have been misled into thinking that literature exists between the covers of books. It is perhaps easier to see that a traditional musical score is not music, for a person reading such a score is not experiencing the work of music in the medium in which it was meant to be experienced. I say traditional because there are scores that reflect other or additional aims. A person reading a novel silently, however, is indeed experiencing the work of fiction in the medium in which it was meant to be experienced. But the medium is language, not paper and ink, and the reading is a performance based on a sequence of notations. Different kinds of performance are required by music and by literature, but the status of the tangible texts in relation to the works is the same in both cases. Most people do, of course, recognize in some sense that literature is not tangible, but they have not proceeded from that point to think coherently about the relationship between literature and the physical objects that transmit it. Symptomatic of the confusion is the use of the word book to mean both intangible work and physical object. More often the former, necessitating the use of such phrases as the book as a physical object when speaking of the latter. How we define the word book is of no consequence. What matters is that we distinguish clearly in some way between the intangible work and the tangible text. But commonly people waver between the two and as a result seem to be suggesting that somehow an intangible thing can be compressed into the physical space of a book, that a text is not subject to physical laws and exists on a different plane from the package that encloses it. A failure to think of texts as part of the physical makeup of books is pervasive and can even enter the thinking of curators of books and manuscripts. In the course of a thoughtful discussion of the relationship between library curators and readers, a Cambridge University librarian tells the story of a conservation expert who said that one should not expect to open old books any more than one would expect to drink out of wine glasses on display in a museum. The librarian disagreed, saying, I would drink out of the old wine glasses as well on special occasions. <laughs> Both the conservator and the librarian associated the opening of books with reading, with the function for which books as utilitarian objects are intended, just as they thought of glasses as intended for drinking. The librarian could have made a more effective reply by saying, leaving utility aside, a book must be opened simply to look at it fully as an object, for without examining the paper that makes up its bulk, and the inked markings on that paper, one has seen only a small fraction of the object. The traditional lack of attention to the physicality of ink and of texts in ink has naturally meant that books have been undervalued as objects. Even if an intangible work is somehow present in a book, people have believed that its immateriality prevents its being destroyed when the book is destroyed as if the text could transmigrate to another body. Clearer thinking about the intangibility of verbal works, however, leads in the other direction, 
toward a recognition of the unique artifactual value of every one of the objects that we call books. Not only every manuscript book, but every copy of every printed edition. For if the marks on paper do not constitute verbal works themselves, but only instructions for the reconstitution of those works, then they must always be open to question, since at any point instructions can be erroneous. And every element in the presentation of those instructions is thus potentially significant as a clue for interpreting and evaluating them. The immateriality of literature forces us to pay attention to every detail of its material transmission, for we generally have no other way of getting at it. Whether we are reading an early edition or a current paperback, an ancient manuscript or a later scribal copy of it, the process of reading entails the questioning of the texts in front of us. The process of extracting meaning from a text or putting meaning into it, depending on one's point of view, involves judging whether the words and marks of punctuation in that text are the ones that ought to be there. Everyone has had the experience of noticing a typographical error in a printed text or a slip of the pen in a handwritten one, but few have recognized the tremendous implications of that discovery. Correcting such an error means that one is not accepting the physical documentary text unquestioningly, that one is not equating it with the text of the work, and that what one wishes to experience is the work which has to be reconstructed from the document. Once this small correction is made, one's course is set if the matter is given a moment's thought. There is no turning back to the view that verbal works reside in books. But one is then obliged to scrutinize books even more carefully than before for evidence that might have a bearing on evaluating the physical texts in them. A scribal copy of the manuscript one is looking at, a different copy of the printed edition one is looking at, or a copy of a different edition, or a photocopy of any of these, would each offer its own physical characteristics. And in reading a given copy, one is struggling with the unique characteristics of that copy. It is not realistic to suggest that reading must always entail a full-scale bibliographical analysis, but reading should take place within a framework of thought that recognizes the ultimate dependence of our knowledge of verbal works on the examination of every detail connected with their transmission. This understanding of reading provides a frequently overlooked reason for the preservation of the physical evidence in books and thus for book collecting. The other good reasons that I mentioned earlier, such as the value of the details of bookmaking for publishing and graphic arts history, are the ones most often cited but they have not engaged the interest of large numbers of scholars and other readers. To most readers, they seem worthy but peripheral and on a lower intellectual plane than a concern with the ideas that are found in or stimulated by verbal works. But when it is seen that reading physical evidence is all that reading can be, when it is understood that reading to experience a verbal work entails a reconstruction of the work 
through the acceptance or rejection of each instruction provided by the tangible text, then it can be recognized that there is no divergence between an interest in physical evidence and an interest in ideas. A respect for the physical evidence in books then becomes as central to an appreciation of verbal works as a respect for the physical objects in museums is to an appreciation of visual art. Should not librarians have understood this fact and through their example educated the manifold users of books? It is true that very few non-librarians have understood it either, but that is no excuse. In this respect, museum curators are luckier than librarians, for both the scholarly and the general public have a more adequate sense of the artifactual value of objects without verbal texts than they do of objects with verbal texts. But librarians, as the professionals entrusted with the keeping of verbal texts, can legitimately be expected to know more than other people about the nature of the material they oversee. It is fair to say, however, that in general they lag behind museum curators in grasping the full significance of the objects they deal with. There are individual exceptions, of course, not entirely to be equated with those who work in rare book libraries or departments. Librarians have been the unfortunate victims of a complex irony. First of all, they are perceived by many scholars as mere managers or manipulators of objects without much understanding of the intellectual concerns that draw readers to the texts of books. In fact, librarians, by and large, do not think of themselves as dealing with objects, but rather with the so-called intellectual content or information in books. But by stressing their role as facilitators of the exchange of information, they do lend credence to the charge of superficiality. The final irony is that if they had focused on the physical object after all, and shown how it <laughs> and the attacks have not always been justified, but some have been serious, the two most famous perhaps being those of Randolph G. Adams half a century ago and of Fredson Bowers a quarter of a century ago, the former particularly well known for its title, Librarians as Enemies of Books. Both lament, among other things, the small attention paid to the physical book in library schools and in libraries. But neither makes the point, as I have here, that all books should be regarded as rare books. If my criticism is therefore more sweeping than theirs, it has, like theirs, a constructive intent, for I believe that librarians' work should be and can be part of the vital center of intellectual life. It cannot attain that position, however, as long as it divorces the intellectual from the physical aspects of books. There is no better illustration of the library profession's emphasis on so-called information over artifacts than the way it has succumbed to the lure of microfilm and other microforms. Although Jackson in 1949 said, the limitations of photographic reproduction are too well known for me to discuss. <coughs> Library administrators in the intervening decades 
have not recognized the force of these limitations, but rather have increasingly implemented microfilming programs in which what is left of the originals after filming is destroyed. In earlier years, this activity was often undertaken for the saving of space it would achieve. Today, it is more likely to be explained as a relatively inexpensive way of saving texts printed on acidic paper that has become brittle. In either case, the implication is that the content can be preserved independently of the artifacts. Scholars generally have accepted these arguments, not having any better understanding of how books work than the librarians to whom they have often felt superior. Those who have objected have in most cases done so because they found microfilm inconvenient to use, an objection so trivial that if it were the only problem with microfilm, there would in effect be no problem at all. The few serious criticisms have noted that microfilm camera operators can make mistakes, skipping pages for example, or that photography can be misleading obliterating some features and causing others to appear as something different from what they are. Such problems do occur, but they are manifestations of a more basic problem, that secondary evidence is always suspect. Photographs of the pages of a book constitute a new document, a new physical object with its own physical characteristics. As we read the document, we evaluate its physical evidence in an effort to reconstruct the book from which it descended before we can go on to evaluate the evidence of the inferred book. One makes do, of course, with whatever survives, for there is no alternative. But when we are confronted with such recent loss of evidence, loss produced intentionally in the name of preservation, <coughs> we have another reason to weep for the folly of humanity. Scarcely a day now passes that the microfilming epidemic does not thrust itself on my attention in some way, either through my discovering that certain materials are no longer available in original form in a particular library, or my being asked to join an appeal imploring some librarian to give a reprieve to a category of material scheduled for destruction. Recently I saw in the annex of the New York Public Library a whole range of shelves of 19th century newspapers marked with signs that read, microfilmed to be discarded. The, great, the greatness of this library had been exemplified just the day before when I located its remarkable run of Bradshaw's railway timetables from the mid-19th century in fine original condition with most of the large folding maps intact enabling me to confirm the identity of the map on which Herman Melville wrote his name during his 1849-50 European trip. Someone later cut out his signature, and only that small fragment of his copy is known to survive. A microfilm of the full map would not have shown how it was folded and whether the place Melville signed would have, would have been an outer surface, as one would expect. Yet if the Bradshaw timetables had been in the general stacks rather than in the Parsons collection, one cannot help but wonder whether they would have been consigned to the same fate as the newspapers. Although that fate is not necessarily destruction, given the library's policy of offering such discards to other institutions or to dealers, the question must be asked whether this library should be content with the microfilms alone. 
And certainly its program of microfilming pamphlets has resulted in the destruction of many of them. Thus is the greatness of a great library tarnished. And the New York Public Library is only one of many libraries that have so-called preservation microfilming programs or that participate in the consolidated effort of the Commission on Preservation and Access. This commission, founded by the Council on Library Resources in 1986, has performed an enormously valuable service in drawing widespread attention to the magnitude of the problem of deteriorating paper in 19th and 20th century books and in mobilizing large amounts of public and private money to tackle the problem. But by endorsing the use of microfilm as a means of preservation, it is reinforcing the view, which the public is inclined to hold in any case, that a book is saved by saving what is called the information in it, and that this content can simply be transferred from one vehicle to another. The Commission has thus far failed to seize a great opportunity to educate the book world in the irreplaceability of artifacts. It could have publicized, more effectively perhaps than any other organization, the limitations of photocopies and the grave consequences of destroying any artifact. It could have taught the lesson that every book, every copy of every edition, is, like every other artifact, a unique physical object not precisely identical with any other object, and that destroying any book therefore reduces the stock of bibliographical evidence and, in turn, our ability to understand, to read fully, the work represented by the text on its pages. If the Commission had established this framework for its activities, it could then have proceeded cautiously to the reproduction of certain texts insisting that in every case what remains of a book after photographing be saved. Everyone would presumably agree that a microfilm or other photocopy of a book is better, than, <coughs> is better than no copy at all, but whether these are the only alternatives is a debatable question. Most books are not frequently used, and neglect can sometimes be an artifact's best friend. Overzealousness with current technology will not earn us the gratitude of future generations. New technology is even now rapidly altering the situation. A dramatic instance is the prismatic camera recently developed in Germany that can simultaneously photograph two facing pages in a book opened at an angle of only 60 degrees. But the capability of photographing books without damaging them does not ensure that the books will be retained after photographing, so long as attitudes are not changed with the technology. I think it is undeniable that the common attitude of disregard for the physical evidence in books has produced an insensitivity to the destruction of books that would not be condoned by professionals dealing with any other category of artifact. Yet the professional literature of book preservation routinely recommends what it calls format conversion, or a similar euphemism for discarding originals, except for books of so-called intrinsic or artifactual value. 
the absurdity of the notion that some artifacts have artifactual value and some do not is never recognized. Even if readers at large believe that the intellectual content of books is incorporeal and yet movable to different containers, we should hold librarians to a higher standard for it is their business to understand and show others the relation of books to verbal works and thus to be scholar teachers of the book. With few exceptions, however, librarians are not trained to think of themselves as, uh, are, are trained to think of themselves as curators not of objects, but rather of verbal works and thus of intangible entities. As the means of reproducing the texts of books have proliferated, from photostat and microfilm to xerography and electronic scanning, along with the technology for sending written, printed, and electronic texts from one location to another via telephone lines, library schools have increasingly paid attention to what is now called information science. In 1960, the Association of American Library Schools had 32 members, and not one had the word information in its name. In 1983, this organization changed its name to the Association for Library and Information Science Education, reflecting the fact that of its 68 members at that time, 38 had names incorporating the word information. An emphasis on information had been present in library schools from the beginning, but the increase in non-paper, and thus non-book, means of transmitting verbal texts dramatized what was seen as the independence of texts from their containers, and information came to be a code word showing responsiveness to the electronic revolution. Such responsiveness, however, may have had the unintended effect of making the function of library schools less clear on campuses where strong computer science and information management programs had developed independently of them. Future historians will decide what role this situation played in the complex of factors that led to the announcements within the last 15 years of the closing of more than a dozen American library schools, including as this audience well knows, the oldest one here at Columbia. But in any event, it can be said that if the traditional emphasis of library schools had been different, they would not now be regarded as dispensable. Their neglect of rare book training, their failure to insist on it for all librarians, is the key. And this point is not negated by the closing of the Columbia School despite the presence in it of the most extensive and distinguished program in rare books in the country. The fame of this program did cause the Columbia administration to express the hope that it might remain at Columbia. And although it can indeed operate independently of a library school, the administration's suggestion implies a belief that rare books are different from other books, and in this respect is symptomatic of the problem itself. Library schools and their graduates over the past century have not established a climate in which people can see why the study of books as physical objects is central to cultural history. It is central because it demonstrates how all tangible texts, 
made up of words, musical notation, or other symbols, are affected by the physical process of their transmission. Far from being old-fashioned or outmoded, as some think the study of old books must be in the age of computers, it is the most basic and forward-looking of approaches for two reasons. First, it prepares us to continue to examine our heritage of works in intangible media, which includes all works of language, music, theater, dance, and cinema, works that will go on affecting our lives in the future. Second, it also prepares us for handling new works of this kind as they are transmitted initially and subsequently by electronic vehicles. For these vehicles are inescapably physical, even if not made of paper and ink. Texts are stored on tape and on discs, described in such physical terms as hard and floppy, and appear on cathode ray tubes, all of which are physical objects that have their own effects on the texts they transmit. Persons who study the peculiarities of the various computer programs for word processing have a different specialty from those who study the habits of individual compositors in printing shops, but both are linked in their attention to the ways in which the texts of intangible works are forever at the mercy of tangible processes of transmission. If library schools had trained librarians to follow the implications of this basic fact, there would be no split between information scientists and rare book curators, or indeed between librarians and other scholars. There are, in fact, splits within the ranks of those other scholars as well, stemming from the same problem. Scholars who concentrate on the transmission of texts, that is, textual critics and editors, have often been misunderstood by other scholars, their work greeted condescendingly as no doubt basic but lacking the intellectual challenges of supposedly more creative historical and critical scholarship. What editors actually do is to read the documents, trying to read all the evidence those objects have to offer and assessing it critically. The process of criticism does not begin when a literary critic or a philosopher takes up a text provided by an editor. It begins with the editor's own work, which reflects an attitude toward all the issues that critics confront. But editor's work suffers in the eyes of many scholars from the taint of the physical. Work involving physical evidence is thought to be mechanical and objective, in contrast to the higher critical powers required to deal with the intangible intellectual product. The body has been chosen rather than the soul. In recent years, there have been some welcome signs, particularly in literary studies, of a greater interchange of ideas between editors and non-editors. It has become clear in an age of literary theory that textual critics and other critics grapple with the same questions and both groups have begun, in a small way, to refer to one another's work. For the first time in the long history of textual criticism, textual theorists are seriously examining alternatives to the traditional goal of editing, the establishment of texts that reflect their author's intentions, texts purged as much as possible of alterations made by other persons. Several writers challenging the dominance of authorial intention 
argue that literature reaches the public only through the collaboration of a number of people and that the texts we should be interested in are the social products that emerge from this process. A fascinating aspect of the debate between adherence of intentionalist and of social theories of textual criticism is the shifting role played by physical evidence in the two approaches. Intentionalist editors have analyzed in books those physical features that can reveal information about how the books were produced. Although facts of printing history established in this way are not limited in their usefulness to the reconstruction of authorially intended texts, this kind of bibliographical analysis has become associated with intentionalist editing and consequently is often disparaged by those opposed to such editing. They, in turn, stress the importance of format and layout because the details of the physical presentation of texts are a product of the collaborative process of publication and have affected readers' responses. When the social textual critics claim that such features are integral parts of literary works, intentionalist editors can properly reply that authors did not necessarily conceive of them in that way. In some instances, authors did make visual effects a part of their work, creating mixed media works consisting of both art and literature. Such works must be examined in the original because they are works of visual art, and the physical object is the actual work. Most literary works, however, are purely works of language, but any physical texts of them, though not the works themselves, are also of vital importance because they are the principal and often the only basis from which we can reconstruct the works regardless of whether we define them as what their authors intended or what their readers perceived. If those taking the former approach have emphasized physical details not intended for public notice by the producers of books, and those taking the latter have concentrated on details planned to impress readers, in both cases, the centerpiece is the physical book. These two viewpoints are not opposed, as the debates often make them seem, but complementary, two ways of approaching the past, both necessary for a comprehensive picture and both linked by the physical object. As with differences of opinion in library schools or between library schools and other divisions of universities, or between literature departments and other departments that use and study written and printed matter, it is the centrality of the physical object that will ultimately be the catalyst for mutual understanding. We cannot expect a change soon, however, in an attitude so profoundly entrenched as the prevalent view of the relation of books to works made of words. I can illustrate the hold it has on people by quoting from Frank Kermode's review of the new Oxford Shakespeare. For even Kermode, generally a sane and perceptive critic, falters when it comes to this point. In discussing the Oxford editor's handling of several famous cruxes, he points out that the phrase arm gaunt steed in Antony and Cleopatra is emended in the modernized Oxford text to arm jaunced steed, meaning a horse that has pranced bearing armor. And that for the old spelling text, 
the participle jaunced, J-A-U-N-C-E-D, is converted to the form I-A-U-N-C-T. Kermode remarks, and I quote him, the emendation has been read back into Elizabethan spelling, and the word arm, I-A-U-N-C-T, is a pretty modern guess at what the author, or a compositor, or a proofreader wrote or rewrote. It is, in fact, a fake antique. <laughs> End of quote. The infinitive form, I-A-U-N-C-E, is real enough, if rare, but the past participle, I-A-U-N-C-T, has not been discovered in Renaissance writing. It is unquestionably, therefore, a 20th century imagination of a Renaissance form. But to call it a fake antique is to misunderstand the purpose of critical editing and, indeed, the ontology of literature. A critical editor creates a new text, a text that is different from any that survives or probably ever existed in written or printed form. But if the aim is historical, the text is meant to come closer than any previous text to what was intended by one or more of the creators or producers of the work at a given moment. The idea that such a newly created text could be truer to what was intended in the past than any text that has actually come down to us is a recognition of the fact that verbal works do not reside in paper and ink, and that if we wish to experience them, they must be recreated in the process of reading the evidence at our disposal. And editors are essentially exemplary readers. Each of us and each editor will make mistakes, and we can never know when we have succeeded. Intangible works are, by nature, indeterminate. Debates about the indeterminacy of meaning in verbal works should, but seldom do, proceed from an understanding of the indeterminacy of the texts of those works. The creation of a word like I-A-U-N-C-T is a natural part of the fundamental process of reading. We may have reasons for thinking it is wrong, but we cannot object to it as a fake antique because the question of its physical existence is irrelevant. A reproduction of a table or a chair, in contrast, no matter how brilliantly executed, can never be anything other than a fake antique. For the medium of the work is physical, and the reproduction is a different object. A forged book, or a microfilmed book, <laughs> is a fake antique for the same reason, since a book is a work of graphic art. That is why readers must have authentic books if they are to have authentic evidence for reconstructing verbal works. And that is why libraries must be museums. The world itself is a museum, of course. Joyce's, ineluct Joyce's ineluctable modality of the visible encompasses the rusty boot as well as the nearing tide, signatures of all things I am here to read in the words given to Stephen Dedalus. We cannot avoid reading artifacts as signatures of intellect. They are an inescapable part of our physical surroundings 
seemingly more prevalent than objects of nature in many inhabited regions, and they insistently remind us of the human past, whether we are interested in it or not. If we are not, they serve as chance objects to inspire our flights of mental activity, which vary as they vary. If the past does interest us, then every detail of every object is valuable as our primary basis for imagining the lives and thoughts of those who produced and possessed those objects. Works in tangible media, if they survive at all, can be read directly, even though they have inevitably changed over time. But the reading of works in intangible media, which include the world's entire heritage of verbal statements, necessarily involves reconstructing them from such evidence as can be passed down through time. And although the objects bearing verbal texts, like all other objects, are affected by that passage, their physicality gives them a status as evidence that can rarely be accorded to oral tradition. Reading requires us to be curators. And information science can only be, in essence, the knowledge of how texts are affected by the tangible means devised by human ingenuity for their transmission. So however we define the source of meaning, whether we search for past meaning or believe that present meaning is all there is, we are tied to artifacts. The objects made by humanity form a yoke that holds us all together. Thank you. lecture in the Book Arts Press series will be on Monday the 28th of January. If Monday is the 28th of January, and if it is not, then it's on the Monday nearest to the 28th of January. It will be Larry Sullivan, the new chief of the Rare Book Division at the Library of Congress, meditating on his first year in office. Your present duty, however, is to adjourn to room 523 for two purposes. One is to acquire a copy of the 1989 Malkin Lecture back from the printer a day early. It arrived on Friday. Uh, printed uh, by the Meriden Steinhauer Press, as usual. And we thank Mr. Steinhauer, as usual, who's in the audience, for its for the firm's continuing ability to deal with the impossible deadlines that I give it. A copy of the Malkin Lecture from last year is yours if you will simply sign your name and give your address to the person who's handing them out so that those of you who are friends in the Book Arts Press uh, aren't burdened with two copies. Your other duty is to have a glass of champagne with the speaker. Thank you for coming. <laughs>